Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And before we turn the mics on, or actually after we turn the mics on, but before we officially started the episode, we were just talking about, is there a better 80s action movie than Point Break? Um, I mean, arguably, there, there are some definitely some action pictures that I love more than Point Break. But Point Break has a purity to it. You know, this, like, this, 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 the, the weird nobility of this band of uh, nomadic surfers who are also uh, bank robbers and, uh, and, and the man who is pursuing them, a man who must become a surfer in order to catch surfers. Because isn't that, <laughs> isn't that the old saying, in order to catch a surfer, you must become a surfer? Uh-huh. Uh, something like that. Uh, Patrick Swayze is the key to the movie. Oh, and hey, by the way, if you're out there, some kind of pedant saying, wait a minute, Point Break didn't come out in the 1980s. How are you saying it's the best 80s action movie? As we all know, cine- in the cinema world, the 1980s lasted until 1992. Okay, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a solid argument. But yeah, this was this was some some really great Swayze in this film. Uh, like Swayze just has such such a unique charisma that he's it's, it's like with um, with Roadhouse. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's able to be just so serious in this role, and it's and you're, you're laughing. Because it is ridiculous, but at the same time, you're totally buying into this uh, presentation he's giving you. Absolutely, the the deep seriousness and the delivery of the lines like "pain don't hurt." Mm-hmm. Uh, the the fact that he is is trying to commit to this character who's like a philosopher bouncer. Yeah, in Roadhouse. Yeah, yeah in Roadhouse. Uh, but I mean, essentially, I think he's playing the same character in Point Break. In that, yeah. in Roadhouse, he's a philosopher bouncer. In Point Break, he's the same character. He's now become a philosopher surfer slash bank robber. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and he's he's tremendous. You just like he he eats up every scene he's in. Point Point Break is a great example of one of these eighties uh, again, nineteen ninety one, but it was the eighties eighties action movies that is so silly uh, in a way that like there are still action movies that have a great spirit of silliness that aren't like these unpleasant, self-serious action movies. Uh, You know, a good example is like the later movies in the Fast and the Furious franchise, which can be a lot of fun, but they're in on the joke. Like The Rock is winking at the camera. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's played explicitly for a kind of like wet laughter that like cars can fly and all this stuff. Uh, but that's not what's going on in Point Break. Point Break and and some of the movies like it are just as silly as the later Fast and the Furious movies. But they're not they're not winking at you. They're not in on the joke. Instead, they've got Patrick Swayze who's taking himself real seriously. I wonder if part of that is that a film like Point Break, like building on the in a sense, even though it's an '80s and so technically '90s film, it's building on like the grittier. Uh, like a film heritage of the 1970s that preceded it, mm-hmm. and where whereas 90s films are are proceeding from the 80s films, uh, and so forth, to where there's just like the initial groundwork underneath something like The Fast and the Furious is just that much sillier, and that that and just further removed from like 1970s cinema. Wait a minute, why are we talking about Point Break? Oh yeah, yeah. we're talking about it because this episode's about uh, surfing Neanderthals. <laughs> Two, I mean, it's also not about surfing Neanderthals, but it is about Neanderthals. It's about uh, surfer's ear uh-huh. and uh, surfing Neanderthals. The working title of Point Break that was on the script. <laughs> it, I, it, it, my, this is exactly where my mind went when I first uh, read a very recent um, 
scientific paper that came out about uh-huh. Neanderthals and surfers here. But but before we get into all that, um, and we may come back to Point Break as we uh, proceed, uh, I, again, I want to be clear that this episode is not really about surfing. It doesn't have that much to do with surfing. But I do want to point out the ancient origins of this aquatic practice we call surfing. What? Surfing wasn't invented in the 1960s? No, no, no. Uh, and I was looking at a, a couple of sources on this, uh, but but one of the better ones I came across um, at, uh, was a, a book by Ben R. Finney and James D. Houston called Surfing, A History of the Ancient Hawaiian Sport. And uh, it's pretty insightful. They point out that that all you need really to surf is a surfer and a board and, of course, waves. Okay. Um, or something standing in for a board, such as a canoe or even the surfer's own body. I mean, you can body surf. Mm-hmm. Wait, you don't need a surf ball? A surf you don't, ball. <laughs> you don't need a surf suit? Uh, well, as we'll discuss, it can be very helpful, uh-huh. especially in the colder waters. Uh, but, you know, it's just, it's ultimately, and, and I don't know, have you ever surfed, Joe? Have you ever? Uh, no, I've, I mean, uh, very limited water experience. I, I, I've done like kneeboarding and okay. stuff. That's, I know that's not surfing. I'd say that's the closest analogy. But you, you've gotten up on your knees on a surfboard um, well, not on a surfboard, on a kneeboard. I don't okay. know how different they are. But I've gotten you... up on my knees on a floating thing that was being towed behind a boat. Okay, well, uh, a little. Uh, this cl- well, it's not close, but but it's it's enough. <laughs> we can we can build from here. Okay. So I I am not a surfer, but I on a, a trip to Hawaii, um, you know, like a, like twenty years ago or something. Um, I I was encouraged by a friend to go out and try it. Okay. I mean, this friend had surfed before. This is very helpful, I find, if you are going to try to surf. Uh, certainly go with someone who has at least done it once before. Mm-hmm. Pre- preferably somebody who, who is more skilled than that. But uh, there is this kind of magical moment where you're you're pushing the board. You're, you're paddling and kicking. You're just going as hard and as fast as you can. Uh, and then there comes this this almost magical moment where the wave catches the board. And suddenly the wave is propelling the board. And this mm-hmm. is the point where then you can climb up on, onto your knees on the board. And then once you, you know, have your, you know, figure out what you're doing, this is where you can rise up on both of your feet on the board. And you can ride the surfboard like a surfer uh, rides a surfboard. And uh, Sounds it, hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I definitely would have given up had I not been encouraged to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, to just all right, keep do, do it again uh, once more. Let's let's paddle back and then paddle as hard and fast as you can to try and catch this magical moment when the when the board catches you. Okay. Um, yeah. And so like once, so all you need is a board, the waves, yourself, and then like the patience and or courage to to reach that point where you can rise up on the board and become comfortable enough doing so that you can manipulate the bird board further. Okay. So if surfing was not invented by the Beach Boys in no. the mid twentieth century, where does surfing actually come from? Well. Uh, as the authors of this point out, Hawaii is, of course, strongly associated with surfing. And mm-hmm. humans seem to have first arrived at these uh, far-flung Polynesian islands uh, by between 300 and 400 CE. Now, longboards would have developed over time, and the authors guess that Hawaiian surfing is ultimately perhaps a 1,000 years old. Yet the principles involved would have been known to Pacific Islanders and the first pioneers to enter the Pacific as far back as 2000 BCE. So, um, you know, it's one of those, again, it's one of those things where the necessary technology uh, and, and, uh, and ability, you know, is not something that were, it, it did not exist before a thousand years ago. You know, right. like conceivably, uh, you know, the, these more ancient uh, cultures knew of the, uh, the, the properties involved. 
So we don't know for sure how far back it could go. Right. And there's also some debate whether a form of stand-up paddleboarding practiced by the pre-Incan civilization in Peru would have constituted surfing some 2,000 years ago. Hmm. Uh, of course, that's another thing. You get into, uh, you know, discussions of the terminology. Is it truly surfing? Is it something else? Are, are, are the, the people on these paddleboards ever reaching that point where the, you know, the, the magic of the wave takes over and propels them? Uh, but anyway, I just I found it, it, it'll be useful, I think, to just think of that as we proceed uh, in, in order to also keep it connected to surfing in some way, to think of, of surfing as this thing that is at least a thousand years old, uh, maybe older, and uh, and ultimately, just based on the technology involved, is not all that, uh, uh, you know, constrained to a particular uh, portion of human time. For all we know, dinosaurs were surfing. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> well, not, Denver, the dinosaurs not, were surfing. Well, no, the dinosaurs were not surfing. Uh, but, I mean, ultimately, to come back to the title of the episode, when you start wondering if Neanderthals surfed, there's absolutely no evidence that they did. But when you start considering the technology involved, yes, somebody could make a case for it, and it would be, you know, it, you wouldn't have, be able to prove it necessarily, but you wouldn't be able to, to disprove it. So what we're going to be talking about, though, in this episode uh, is more a matter of what is known as surfer's ear. Okay. Now, I remember from when I was a kid, people I knew getting swimmer's ear, but that was just like ear infections, right? Right. Swimmer's ear is a, is a different thing. This is a bacterial infection of the outer ear often caused by trapped water. So water or debris you know, gets trapped in the ear and it can cause an infection. And uh, and depending on like the the the, the state and condition of your uh, your ear canals, uh, some people are more uh, you know have have a more tendency, more a greater tendency to uh, to get swimmer's ear than other people. I remember people with swimmer's ear being treated by uh, just getting like ethyl alcohol pulled in there, or, or maybe I I don't know what kind of some kind of alcohol alcohol uh, poured in their ear. Yeah, there's just a st- standard swimmer's ear. Um, yeah, droplets you can get. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used some like just the other day because uh, I, I, I swim uh, fairly regularly. But uh, but but then also not to be confused with the drops you would get for a full blown ear infection. Like okay. this is where it, yeah everything is actually getting like you know more and more painful in your ear, and that may require uh, some more advanced drops. Ugh. But that's not really what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is exostosis of the external auditory canal or external auditory exostosis, or EAE, also known as surfer's ear. And it's this, in the game. Yeah, and it's, it's, a condition, <laughs> it's a condition that affects both modern humans and our, uh, our prehistoric ancestors. So what is EAE? Well, these are dense, bony growths that, uh, that, that grow, that slowly extend into the auditory ear canal. Whoa, bony growths in the ear canal? Now, yeah. Please reassure me, Robert, that these growths are not like spiny. No, no, no. The, these are rounded growths uh-huh. um, that, you know, basically if you look at it, if you look at an image of this, mm-hmm. it looks like there are bony growths on, you know, underneath the skin on either side that are like, that are, that are pushing in, causing kind of a cave-in, a gradual cave-in of the auditory canal. Oh, that still doesn't sound good. So the, the, the question is what causes them? Well, this is where it gets weird. It is... Uh, we basically still have a lot of questions about surfer's ear, but the the widely accepted hypothesis is the um, is the aquatic hypothesis, and that is that it is caused by repeated exposure to cold water, or or in some cases cold wind, but especially cold water, uh, and it's typically encountered in cold water uh, in, in cold water foraging among traditional and ancient peoples, as well as among cold water sports 
uh, practice today, such as surfing. Okay. Coming back to uh, the question of what is required for surfing, and you asked mm. about body suits and yeah. wetsuits or dry suits. And, uh, you know, and, and a part of this is a, uh, has to do with the fact that in addition to having to deal with, you know, potentially being scraped up against uh, uh, things you don't want your body scraped against, you're often uh, also surfing in colder environments mm-hmm. and, uh, and you want to protect your body from the cold. Uh, but uh, cold water is, uh, is, is also an irritant to the inner ear. And, uh, and it is the most commonly observed irritant that leads to surfer's ear. And repeated irritation leads to this growth. Now, wait a minute. It sounded like you were alluding to there being poten- multiple potential explanations, right? Well, th- this is, I mean, well, this is the primary explanation. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I did not encounter another explanation that, uh, uh, that was really presented. Basically, it's just there. some mysteries remain about exactly how it occurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, any, anybody that's discussing surfer's ear like, is, is sticking to the aquatic uh, hypothesis here. Uh, and then certainly the evidence bears it out that it's, I mean, you look at, at where surfer's ear occurs and it occurs in the ears of individuals who are engaging in a lot of cold water activity, be it foraging, you know, uh, pearl diving, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. or uh, surfing. Uh, but, uh, you know, other forms of irritation can, can, can technically cause it uh, uh, because it's just going to result in tissue inflammation in the inner ear. Now, is this going to happen after just like you have a couple of bad days in cold water and you get these growths? No, no, no. It's, uh, this is something that's going to develop uh, over the years. So typically you see it manifest uh, in a person during their, like their mid to late 30s or possibly in their 40s, uh, lining up with the timeline of their exposure to the irritation. It could potentially occur earlier though, but like this is, like when you think about like someone's prime surfing years and at, at what point they've been surfing for uh, you know, for say 20 years, that sort of thing, uh, it's going to line up uh, with this. So you're more likely to see it in people who spend a lot of time in the water over a long period of their lives. Right. Yeah. They're spending a lot of time in cold water. Like they're going surfing a lot or they're mm-hmm. going pearl diving a lot with with a, uh, you know, a fair degree of regularity. Well, so it would seem like having bony growths protruding into your ear canal would not be a good thing. Right. So for, for, the, for the longest, it's not really an issue, but, mm-hmm. you know, it'll reach the point where uh, you'll have potential complications from your, essentially your closing ear canals. Uh, that includes decreased hearing capability uh, and increased likelihood of blockage and infection due to trapped earwax or debris. And, you know, you see generally you're looking at a five to eight millimeter diameter ear canal, but this can be narrowed to almost total blockage over time uh, by surfer's ear. Am I imagining that there's kind of a cultural stereotype where uh, the, the, you know, the, the archetype, the surfer dude, the mm-hmm. surfer person uh, is saying like, what? What would you say a lot? <laughs> is, that, is that just my imagination or does that exist as part of the stereotype? Um, I mean, there's certain, certainly a crossover between like the surfer stereotype and sort of the, the dude and sort of hippie freewheeling stereotype. Uh, uh. I don't know if lack of hearing is really part of it, but it would make sense that, that it would be, right? Mm-hmm. Because based on what we're discussing here, I mean, this is, this is where you're going to see some uh, potential hearing loss due to exposure to the cold water. Now, an important thing to stress, though, is that we only discovered surfer's ear in the last century or so. Uh, I believe the first report on it was a German paper by uh, Welker uh, H. Uber in 1864, and uh, and so you know we haven't had that long to like really study it and figure out what's what the deal is with it, uh, or even to figure out how you know ways to treat it. 
uh, or how to, pre- to, to prevent it. But the, the most obvious ways to prevent it are, of course, to avoid regular cold water activities, mm-hmm. um, which may not be an option or, or desirable for you if, if you're really into surfing or you depend on some sort of cold water foraging. But I've read that cold water surfers are 600% more likely to experience it than warm water surfers. And, that uh, sounds like a significant effect. Yeah. Now, you can also wear varying forms of ear protection that will help, ranging from special plugs to cap, special caps that go over your head and your ear to certain varieties of wetsuits. But if you reach the point where, uh, where the, the bony protrusions have uh, um, grown to the point that it's a, an issue, doctors can also remove uh, the exotosis with a surgical drill. There are, I think, two different uh, procedures, two different ways of going in there and uh, drilling back the bone, uh, the bony growths. And uh, the good news is that if, if you have this done, you'll probably, you really probably only have to do it once because mm-hmm. generally, like, given the timeline of, of them growing back, they can grow back, but you probably won't reach that second point where you'll need to have them removed. All right. looks like we need to take a break, but when we come back, we will ask the question of why the, uh, these spurs in the ears. All right, we're back. All right, so we've been talking about surfer's ear or the idea of external auditory exostoses or EAE. And these are these uh, bone-like protrusions into the ear canal that seem to pop up in people who spend a lot of their lives in cold water. If you're constantly irritating the ear canal with cold water, these things are likely to pop up. Now, I guess we haven't uh, addressed yet why they occur. Well, uh, if you'll think back to uh, the Bible, you have Cain and Abel. And uh, Abel, uh, you know, was was really into staying on the land. Cain was a big surfer. What? So God punished him. No, um, <laughs> that has nothing to do with that. Now, now yeah, this is a, another area where it's, there's still a lot of open questions about it. Uh-huh. Uh, now, so some argue that it's essentially like bone spurs, you know, which uh, these uh, occur either due to, these occur, uh, you know, due to constant irritation or stress uh, generally in the feet, mm-hmm. where you have these bony, um, uh, you know, protrusions that are forming in the foot. And okay. And it can be quite painful. Uh, so one idea is that it's basically that irritation leading to growth, uh, leading to uh, symptoms. And there's not a lot else beyond that in terms of why, like what is the reason, you know, because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like asking what is what is the reason for bone spurs? Mm-hmm. What is, you know, what are the reason for, for various ailments that uh, afflict us due to the things that we insist on doing uh, due to our, uh, uh, you know, our, our human desire to uh, to ride waves or climb uh, mountains to ridiculous uh, heights, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is one area where you will see an argument uh, for a, a purpose behind all that. Unfortunately, it's in aquatic ape theory. Oh, yeah. So aquatic ape theory has come up on the show before. And I think we've talked about how this is one of those theories that's like that's sticky. It's sticky beyond its explanatory power. And it's hard to know exactly why some some hypotheses are like this. But I think it tends to be the ones that are just the most uh, – that offer the most totalizing explanation for the most phenomena through the most interesting image. Yeah. And, and it does that. It. But it is also widely rejected by science. Yeah, and uh, we can talk about some reasons for that in a minute. Yeah, uh, it, but it does continue to come up. And, you know, in fact, it was it was recently brought up uh, in uh, by none other than Sir David uh, Attenborough himself. Oh, uh, he apparently uh, on a BBC Four um, uh, series he talked about it, and he uh, there were some that criticized him for 
you know, bringing up, a, you know, a redundant scientific theory. Well, I'm not going to slam. I mean, you know, we talk about theories that are not accepted because, you know, it's okay yeah. to talk about things. I, it, I agree. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to think something is correct to talk about it, but it sounds like he was sort of advocating it. Well, I mean, he, he has a history of being interested in it. I read that he also organized a symposium on the topic back in 1992. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's like you said, we discuss theories and hypotheses on this show that that are, you know, sometimes definitely under the category of, of rejected or unprovable. Uh -huh. uh, and I think I, my my opinion is that it is okay to discuss these. It's informative to, to, to discuss these ideas, mm. you know, as long as you're approaching them with the right attitude and you're not like, you know, you're not seeking uh, to uh, to prove them, you know, in, the, in your discussion of, the, of, of what is unprovable. Right. You're not becoming an evangelist for something based on bad evidence. Right. Uh, now, so for a brief refresh, in case you don't recall uh, us talking about this theory in the past, the short version is, uh, I think that the original idea was that in 1960, a marine biologist named Alistair Hardy proposed this idea that uh, we, we had an aquatic primate ancestor maybe four to seven million years ago. And uh, he proposed this in this article in New Scientist. I think he also gave a big talk about this. I think the idea was that uh, – us having a, an aquatic or semi-aquatic primate ancestor could explain many interesting morphological features of humans that distinguish us from our closest relatives like the other great apes. And there are a lot of examples of this, like why do we have less body hair than the other great apes? Why do we have this, you know, smoother skin? And his idea was, well, maybe we lost body hair and got smooth skin to streamline us for swimming, to reduce drag in the water. Um, why do we have a thicker layer of subcutaneous fat uh, than some of the other – than I think all the other great apes? And his idea here was, well, maybe that's like what we see in marine mammals that they use for water insulation to help keep their bodies warm. Why do we stand upright instead of walking on all fours? The idea is, well, maybe we had to wade in the shallows and that got us standing up. And while it is an interesting idea and I think, you know, Hardy – it was it was clever for Hardy to come up with this. I think we now have better explanations – for a lot of these interesting differences between humans and the other great apes. And there's also no direct physical evidence for right. the aquatic ape theory. But to bring it back to the context here, is this – you're saying that some enthusiasts of the aquatic ape theory would believe that our ear canals or features of our ear canals uh, would seem to fit in with that list of supposed aquatic adaptations? Yeah, I've read uh, EAE uh, positioned as possible evidence, uh, you know, that it's a narrowing of the ear canals in keeping with the narrowing of ear canals in aquatic mammals. Because true enough, the ear canals in toothed whales are narrow and clogged with debris and wax. In baleen whale, ear canals are plugged with a waxy cap. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, there are obvious problems with this because it's not like, you know, there's not some sort of Lamarckian scenario going on here where surfers start surfing and then their ears mutate <laughs> into into weird forms. It's not like the, the children of surfers uh, have pl have permanently plugged uh, uh, ear holes or anything. Right. Uh, but but I, maybe the idea would be that we evolved the the adaptation that gives our bodies the capability to adapt to repeated water exposure. Right, or, um, or we would have developed the genetic predisposition for for surfer's ear. And we do have a genetic predisposition for surfer's ear. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's, that seems to be the case. But um, I, I think it's, it's a stretch to tie it in with this uh, 
uh, largely refuted theory. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I want to say, again, not that we accept the theory or would advocate it, but in, in the defense of this theory, I mean, it is interesting to consider and there's nothing inherently implausible about the situation it imagines. Nor, nor insidious. Right, it's not exactly, really a, sure. It's not like an anti-science theory. Right, anything. right, right. It's just, uh, so there's nothing implausible about uh, like prehistoric primates migrating to a partially aquatic lifestyle and gaining biological adaptations in the process. It happened with other mammals, right? So it's not hard to believe that a similar thing could have in principle happened with primates, but... The question is just, is that what the evidence we have today supports? And I think most experts, for good reasons, think the answer is no. Right. Uh, most experts today believe the evidence for humans having an aquatic ape ancestor doesn't hold up very well. Again, there's zero direct evidence of it. So we don't have, like, remains of an aquatic ancestor. That just doesn't exist. Uh, so you're, you're having to hypothesize a sort of, like, lost period that we haven't found direct evidence of yet, but just... Uh, reason backwards from traits that exist later. But there's a basic question here. I can't. I came across this on from the writings of some paleoanthropologist, and I'm sorry now I'm forgetting the, the person's name, but here, here's a basic answer. If all these traits that are, they're trying to explain through the aquatic ape theory were uh, acquired through an aquatic lifestyle that happened maybe four to seven million years ago, why were all the aquatic traits retained for millions of years after our ancestors supposedly moved back to dry land? Mm. You would you would expect like then they, these traits would be lost because now they'd be vestigial. Yeah, we'd we'd grow all that uh, lovely hair back. Et yeah, unless you posit like, well, actually, it turned out once you moved back onto land, there was a good reason for retaining that trait. Now it now it stayed because it served some other survival purpose. But then you could just short-circuit the aquatic ape situation and say, well, maybe we just got those traits because it served some other purpose. So, right. Like, like coming back to the, uh, the hair theory of like the less hair you have, the more you're able to show off that parasite-free skin. Right. That's a, a common theory. I mean, so there are a couple of major theories that exist now to explain why humans' ancestors lost a lot of the body hair they originally had. And we don't know the answer, but some fairly plausible answers seem to be that uh, that it helped with uh, with heat dispersal, uh, and that it was maybe a very good sexual selection uh, signal. It it showed off. I don't have any lice on me because look how little hair I have. <laughs> and it turns out that I think there are better explanations like that. Though again, we don't know them for sure, but they seem like very plausible, uh, fitting with the evidence explanations for all of these traits that are answered through the aquatic ape theory. So why do we stand up on two legs? We don't know the answer, but a good candidate for that seems to be that we were using our hands for things. We adapted to to want to have free hands uh, and uh, other things like, oh, a, a common one that's cited for the aquatic ape hypothesis is that uh, why do we have voluntary control over our breath, right? We wouldn't need that unless we were trying to be able to dive underwater to get, you know, marine mollusks or something as prey. But what if we evolved voluntary control of the breath because we needed to speak? Right, to speak, to sing, all, you know, to, uh, to communicate with each other. With each other. Uh, it, the, these are activities that require uh, control of breath. Yeah, so I guess my main takeaway is that, you know, I don't want to slam aquatic ape too hard. It's not like an odious theory or something. Mm -hmm. It's just that I think it's 
something that is it's unfortunately sticky and there are better hypotheses more in line with the actual evidence we have to explain the same morphological features that people appeal to the aquatic ape theory to explain. All right. Well, on that note, let's take one more break. But when we come back, we'll uh, we'll get to some more good stuff discussing surfer's ear in human remains, but also in the remains of Neanderthals. All right, we're back. So I think all this stuff about surfer's ear is fascinating in and of itself, but the the extra cool thing here is that surfer's ear is detectable in human remains. Oh, right, because it's not just soft flesh. They're like bony protrusions. Yes. So we can can look to coastal humans of the past and judge to what degree they were interacting with cold water. Oh. And then we can also, based on that, determine how such acts were divided between the genders based on the skeletal remains. That's right, yeah. For instance, in December of 2018, researchers from Washington University in St. Louis discovered skeletal evidence of surfer's ear in a pre-Columbian Panamanian village. Uh, They were looking at 125 skulls from nine burial sites, and they found seven cases in males, one in female. So this is this is interesting. You think of Panama, and you think of uh, you may think of warmer waters, mm-hmm. but uh, the water in the Gulf of Panama is actually quite cold between January and April. And the researchers believe that the divers uh, here, the, the remains that they found, were likely specialized pearl divers, uh, probably going after stuff like uh, like mother of pearl or. Um, or the orange and purple pearls that derive from two species of thorny oysters. These were these were popular in the region, and you also find these artifacts uh, among the, the buried dead hmm. uh, in these grave sites. Also, Spanish explorers uh, would later record the activities of such pearl divers as well. You know, stating that they were trained since childhood to dive down four fathoms. That's uh, twenty-four feet or seven point three meters deep. Ooh, my ears are hurting just thinking yeah. of that. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, surf is certainly like these would have been individuals diving down into those cold waters, uh, f- training from an early age and developing uh, these bony protrusions that would th- that were then detectable, um, you know, uh, you know, ages later uh, when we look back and try to figure out how they lived. Uh, so, you know, it's little things like that that are insightful about it. But of course, we're talking about the recent past. We're talking about uh, human remains, uh, you know, homo sapiens. Is there, is there a reason you brought up Neanderthals early on? I feel yes. like there was. Yes. We got a connection here. And that's because there's a very recent study, uh, and this one uh, came from Washington University. Uh, Eric Trinkas et al. Uh, authored a paper, External Auditory Exososis Among Western Eurasian Late Middle and Late Pleistocene Humans. And this was published in PLOS 1. So uh, just a refresher about the Neanderthals, who we've, we've talked about on the show before and we'll continue to talk about because there's always some sort of cool Neanderthal-related story coming out. Uh, they are our closest extinct relatives. They lived in Eurasia 200,000 to 30,000 years ago. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened to the Neanderthals. They likely transitioned from, they were likely originally transitioned, transitioned from Homo uh, uh, antecessor to Homo neanderthalensis 150,000 years ago, and then they went extinct 30,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, we're continuing to learn a great deal about them, how they differed from us physically, but also what their culture may have consisted of. They were the ideal cold-weather hominids, shorter and stockier than Homo sapiens. They had large brains, but it seems that their brains were were far more suited for intense visual processing rather than social processing, hmm. which would have been needed in the lower light northern climates of Europe. Homo sapiens, on the other hand, are ultimately the evolutionary project, product of uh, higher light regions of Africa. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, enter this new study from uh, Eric Trinkaus uh, et al. Uh, They examined well-preserved ear canals in the remains of 77 ancient humans, including Neanderthals and early modern humans of the middle to late Pleistocene epoch of Western Eurasia. So the rate of Homo sapiens um, surfer's ear was more or less standard, but half of the 23 Neanderthals sampled had EAE. Hmm. And uh, their cases were mild to severe and were seen at roughly twice the frequency of Homo sapiens examples. So the obvious explanation would be that Neanderthals simply foraged in cold waters more than Homo sapiens. And that might well have been part of it. But certainly, it highlights that the water, the cold waters were part of their foraging uh, you know, realm. Uh-huh. But it also could mean that they just had an even greater genetic predisposition for EAE. Because, uh, again, humans have a predisposition uh, for EAE. Uh, and we, we see that in modern uh, human genetics as well. So uh, here's just a quick quote from, uh, from Trinkhaus about the study. Quote, an exceptionally high frequency of external auditory uh, exotosis among Neanderthals and a more modest level among high-latitude, earlier, upper Paleolithic modern humans indicate a higher frequency of aquatic resource exploitation among both groups of humans than is suggested by the archaeological record. In particular, it reinforces the foraging abilities and resource diversity of the Neanderthals. Well, that's interesting. So it's saying that this is an indication that maybe uh, humans and especially Neanderthals of the time were spending more time foraging in the water than other evidence in the archaeological record would predict. Yeah. Just another example of uh, possible evidence for, for Neanderthal exploitation of marine resources for for food or whatever is a uh, is a paper I was looking at from uh, PNAS from 2008 by Stringer et al. that uh, found is so it was looking at the Gibraltar region, and uh, the authors said that quote we find indications that Neanderthals had knowledge of the geographic distribution and behavior of their prey. We present here the evidence from Gibraltar sites showing that Middle Paleolithic humans exploited not only mollusks, but also seals, dolphins, and fish through a widespread of time. Dolphins and seals. <laughs> so we got Neanderthals of the period potentially uh, hunting marine mammals. Not quite whaling, but a modest form of marine mammal hunting. And yeah, and then in, in the process of doing it, uh, developing surfer's ear, possibly to the point of, of deafness. And, and by the way, there's, a, there's another paper, a paper that was also from uh, Trinkos, uh, from 2017, in which uh, uh, he and his team found an old, uh, older Neanderthal from about 50,000 years ago uh, who had suffered multiple injuries and become deaf. As such, uh, he argued that the elder must have relied on the help of others to avoid prey and survive well into his 40s. Mm. So, uh, you know, sort of like sandwiching these two separate studies together, it, like, it kind of paints this picture, you know, of these you know, these, uh, these, these Neanderthals uh, foraging uh, in the cold waters, diving down for mollusks, going after these, uh, uh, these other marine creatures. And in doing so, like the, the, the older members of the society, at least the ones that are, that are engaged in the, the aquatic foraging, uh, you know, going deaf and then having to depend on uh, other members of their society to survive. So I know you've been picturing them as Patrick Swayze the entire time. <laughs> well... 
No, but for, but for some reason, when I first read the headline, uh, like last week or the week before, my uh, my mind instantly went to Point Break. It is the surfing movie uh, par excellence. Wait, what about uh, what about Surf Ninjas? I've never seen Surf Ninjas. Can't vouch for it. I haven't either. Yeah. I guess we'll have to come back and check out Surf Ninjas. I just looked it up. Oh, it has Rob Schneider in it. Ooh, <laughs> is Hulk know. Hogan in that one? Don't know. Uh, not that I can see right here, unless okay. he's a cameo. Okay. It's got Leslie Nielsen, Tone Loke, Rob Schneider, Ernie Reyes Jr. An all-star cast. All right. Well, uh, we'll have to leave it there. But, uh, you know, again, Neanderthals continue to be a topic of interest. And they're just, there's always so many, there are always so many great, uh, uh, potentially interesting uh, studies that are coming out about them. So I'm sure we'll come back to the world of the Neanderthals in uh, the future on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You can also find our other show, Invention, at InventionPod.com. Uh, that's our, our journey through human techno history, looking at various inventions. We haven't done one on the surfboard, but that's exactly the kind of thing we could do because we we've been trying to cover a wide variety of inventions from like major recent technologies to ancient invent, in, inventions that are lost to time mm-hmm. uh, from uh, you know from the the, the advanced and the and, and the to the simple from the obvious uh, uh, to to the far less obvious so uh, check out that show if you haven't already and if you want to support these shows that we're putting together for you uh, the best thing you can do is tell your friends about us uh, wherever you get the podcast rate and review us leave us some stars and a nice comment that helps us out a lot huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Maya Cole if you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.